Welcome to the Five Seven Podcast. I'm your host Pre, and I'm joined with me by my co-host Mike Salinas. Good evening. And today we have on the guest on the show, and his name is Lane. Uh, kill me if I say this wrong, Balone. That's perfect. Awesome. Lane Balone is a U.S. Army Special Forces a Green Beret veteran who has traveled to dozens of countries on six continents, who now helps people achieve high performance and gain fulfillment in life through travel. He uses his experience to clear mental blocks and gain life-changing clarity in weeks, sometimes days. He creates breakthrough experiences abroad to create life-transformative change in his clients. Lane grew up in Oklahoma and served in the military from 2005 to 2017, most of which as a Green Beret. During his service, he deployed to Iraq twice, Northern Africa, and all over Europe. During his adult life, he has climbed mountains, survived the Arctic, and many other physical feats. Upon discharge from the military, Lane and his wife took a three-month road trip across the United States, visiting 37 states and even more cities. Then they moved to Panama to live as vagabonds. Sounds like a lot, man. Been pretty busy. Yeah, I try to. Try to stay active. Where are you from in Oklahoma? Uh, So a small town called Vanita. Um, It's known for a couple things. The two biggest things is it has the world's largest calf fry festival and uh for a time period it was one of the world or the world's largest mcdonald's by one of the standards so it was like a mcdonald's over a, a international or a interstate highway small oh, town cool. five thousand people yeah when i was in the military i uh i served at uh in lawton at uh fort sill for like 15 or 16 months and it's really crazy, like Oklahoma, because it's so uh, it's it's so flat. When you moved out of Oklahoma, was it a little bit, you know, like in your special forces career, was it a little little jarring to see like mountains and things like that? Yeah, nature is is uh, you know awe inspiring. It captures your attention. It, it it takes your breath away, and uh, especially you know large mountains uh like a sea of mountains so to speak mountain ranges uh you know with snow-capped tops uh yeah it's just a beautiful sight so like the diversity of the kinds of terrain that we have in the world is is awesome and that's part of the reason why i love travel that's awesome man so what uh what made you what inspired you to join the military well it was a (laughs) a whim my, my best friend and I, we were deciding what we wanted to do uh, after high school. And so we basically played a, a game of rock, paper, scissors. And it was, you know, if I won, we went to college. If he won, we'd both join the army. And uh, so he ended up, he ended up winning best two out of three. And, uh, you know, that's how, that's how it started. Uh, of course, you know, the, the, the gravity of, of doing some kind of life changing commitment uh, really, really takes uh, a turn that you may not, or that I didn't expect. And, uh, you know, I may have joined kind of out of a whim, but it was, uh, one of the most meaningful steps in my life that I could ever take. Wow. So, so what was your, what was your initial or your first MOS? Yeah. So I was a intelligence analyst <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I joined uh, at, at 17, the delayed entry program, and I, I was just a young guy that didn't know where I was going. Um, I had I had a lot of uh, instilled 
principles and values uh, based on sports and Boy Scouts growing up, but I didn't have any like surefire direction on what I wanted to do. So when I joined and the recruiter said, hey, you could do this job where you're, you're gathering intelligence and you're, and you're doing all this cool stuff. I was like, yeah, let's do that. And, you know, 17, didn't know what I was doing. I, I joined um, and, then, and then basically just continued to, to do my best in whatever it was. And it was about a year and a half after that happened where I was like, yeah, I think I need something a little different. And that's where Special Forces kind of came into the picture. And how exactly did that come into the picture for you? Yeah, so I was stationed in Germany, and I was walking to the shop at, and on the door there was a flyer that said, hey, join Special Forces. And it had you know a couple cool guy pictures on there. I was like, what's that? Like, I wasn't even exposed to it. Uh, you know, being away from kind of the large flagpoles, uh, you know, like Fort Bragg or some of the, the, the high-speed bases in the U.S., being Oconus and being kind of away from that, you know, I wasn't exposed to that kind of, um, you know, I didn't know what Special Forces was. So I went to the briefing. It was in an auditorium, and uh, I walked from the back, and, you know, I like auditoriums are. You have that, you know, the, the front part that had this uh, projector, and they were playing this, like, cool guy, you know, promo video where, like, dudes were just falling out of the sky, blowing stuff up, shooting shoot stuff, and I was just like, whoa. I don't know what all that stuff is, but I want to do that, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, so, I, you know, I was, I was part of the brief. You know, I joined the brief, uh, signed up. Uh, was in selection a couple months later, um, got selected, and then you know went through the whole you know special forces qualification course, uh, the two year journey. How, how did you uh, how did you train you know save physically and mentally for uh, for selection? Yeah, so I was always you know a guy that gave it everything that I could. Uh, I wasn't the most in shape guy, but I was always like the top three. Um, part of my training was, was super simple. Of course, just doing normal PT stuff with the unit. Um, but specifically for selection, I literally wore a rucksack everywhere I went for two months, like day, like as soon as the day started after, uh, PT and breakfast, uh, I was wearing a rucksack everywhere and, and people saw me walking around like, what's this guy doing? <laughs> and that's, that's what I did. And, uh, of course I did, um, you know, ruck runs, uh, regular runs, uh, leading up to it. And, uh, it was, it was a pretty simple, uh, regimen, uh, since I wasn't exposed to a lot of the stuff, uh, like being around a whole bunch of green berets or, uh, you know, Fort Bragg, you know, you could probably go find somebody and talk to him or whatever. Uh, I didn't have that luxury. So I just did what I knew I could do and just prepared physically because, you know, in my mindset and, uh, you know, a, a lot of other people that, the more you prepare physically, the the longer it takes for you to have to tap into that mental stamina. And specifically, uh, special forces assessment selection, you're going to have to tap into that mental game. You know that that mental stamina, it, it's it's a it's a it's a requirement. But the longer or the better you prepare physically, the more you're prolonged to have to tap into that mental stamina. And so that's why guys, that's why you know that's why guys train so much physically. Uh, so they don't have to, uh, or they can prolong that mental tap. I've been contacted on the Instagram, our Instagram page, the 57 podcast Instagram page. And, uh, I've had some guys ask me, what can they do to prepare for special forces, uh, selection? Uh, what advice would you, would you have for them? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of workout programs, and depending on what your um, advantage is based on your body type and profile, uh, I would really take an honest assessment of one, your strengths, and two, your weaknesses. And so that first assessment of who who you are, how you're built, are you a, a runner? Are you just this dude that just knows how to like pump iron like a madman? Like, are you are you just this this huge jacked guy? Uh, because ultimately, uh, to pass selection, you have to have a, a very well-balanced preparation. And, of course, you're going to focus on your strengths, uh, but you have to um, increase your weak weak points. So if you're like this bodybuilder dude, yeah, and you, you have to put in uh, high-intensity interval sprints, you have to put in uh, some kind of runs, some, some, some kind of rucks. So you have to up, you know, up that that weak point that you have to at least a uh, moderate level, like a, um, a, a, a an adequate level to meet the standards. Um, and then of course uh, you have to build upon your, your strengths as well. So that first assess, honest assessment is, you know, your strengths and your weaknesses, and then do a lot of research to figure out how to increase your strengths and increase your, your uh, weaknesses. Um, so that's, that's the, the overall universal stuff uh, because there's there's so many cool books out there that, that says hey you, you gotta do this kind of ruck runs uh, leading up to a, a point um, you know weeks and weeks in advance uh, diet regimens and stuff like that that you know that's not what you're gonna get from this uh, you know my advice here because you can go look that up uh, but an honest assessment of where you're at that's that's key so you made it through selection. What happened then? Selection. Uh, I went back to Germany for. Um, I was I was there for about six months until I actually uh, PCSed to uh, Benning for uh, Airborne. So I did uh, TDY en route. Uh, so I went to uh, Benning, uh, did Airborne school, and then went to Fort Bragg. Uh, that, that six months was a kind of a not, not a weird moment because my but it was kind of weird. Uh, my unit was getting ready to deploy, and everybody was deploying but me. Uh, they were going out in combat. I was going to train, you know, for a couple years, and uh, you know, it felt a little weird, kind of leaving people behind, people that I had trained with, uh, you know, brothers, and uh, ultimately, it, you know, it was a decision that I made, and and you know, I was I was perfectly fine with it. Uh, but it was it was a an interesting moment of of uh, you know leaving everybody kind of like and doing doing my own thing, and that I guess doing my own thing was uh, I guess uh, a, a trend that I was I would continue to follow uh, years to come. How would you say your fitness changed from before and during uh, selection to your you know you're finally in the teams. Yeah, um, you know, listening to your podcast with Mike, uh, a very similar kind of journey. Um, it you know first began just like kind of brute uh, trial and error, uh, going giving it all you got, um, doing everything to the max. And as as we continue to progress in physical fitness uh, strategies and up in your game, basically got smarter. Um, you know, we, we were able to tap into Olympic athlete level uh, strategies, uh, coaches, and implement that kind of mentality into our training. And just basically overall 
being smarter with our training uh, because, you know, breaking down the body uh, too much is not advantageous for any operator or anybody for that fact. So um, as the years progressed, uh, everything got smarter. Everything got more results-based, kind of like the scientific approach and really looking at the highest tiers of physical fitness. And then for me personally, uh, it's been a, a mindset of longevity. Like what can I do or what kind of workout style regimen can I do for the next 50 years, so to speak? Um, and of course, you know, things are going to change and I'm going to test some, test things out, try new regimens, try new, uh, dieting, uh, different kinds of workout styles and everything like that. But the, the, the mentality is what can I do? So that way, uh, there are going to always be sprints. There's always going to be times of elevated stress, elevated workouts, elevated regimens based on things that, uh, that I want to do. Like for instance, uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro about five months ago or so. Uh, so that was a special, different kind of uh, preparation for that. Uh, other kinds of competitions, you you have to push yourself to the limit, so to speak, and that's okay. But the the mentality is longevity. Wow, that's uh, what you will get into your your climbing a bit later because that's really interesting, and uh, and you know it's it's funny, man, because it seems how you know fitness has definitely changed over the years, you know, and and diet is is a, is a big part of it because back in the day, you know, uh you would just pump iron and, and take creatine and that'd be it. You know, what kind of diet or how did your diet change, you know, through your years in the teams? Yeah. I mean, it was just, um, the, the diets, um, overall, like the chow hall, like the, the special forces kind of, uh, diet, I guess, like they, they had specialty, um, meals planning, um, and like the DFAC had that kind of planned out. Um, in addition to that, uh, I was continuing to kind of research and, uh, eventually I moved towards a, uh, a type of intermittent fasting, uh, called time restricted feeding. And, uh, for those that aren't familiar, it's, it's basically you fast for six, about 16 hours, uh, every 24 hour period. And so I basically, uh, do my, my last dinner around 7 PM or so. And then I fast for the whole night. And then the next morning I fast until about 11 AM or, or noon or so. Uh, and that's where I have my first meal. So that's, that's every day for the past. I've done that, um, for two years, um, maybe once a month, maybe once every two months, I'll, uh, I'll have a breakfast or something like that at a, at a normal breakfast time. Uh, but other than that, uh, I've been doing that every single day and, uh, it's gotten a lot of great results. Um, specifically, uh, one I'll point out is that I've noticed that, you know, traveling and doing, being active and stuff like that every once in a while, I'll, I'll go like a couple weeks without doing any heavy lifting. And what I've noticed with this regimen is that my, my strengths and my size, uh, remain un, um, affected for uh, longer. So, um, if I, you know, back in my military days, uh, every once in a while, there'd be like a week of, uh, you know, not training very hard. And after that week, I could tell that first hard workout afterwards, I'd be like, Oh man, I haven't hit the gym, you know, like, but now it could be, um, about 10 or 12 days to where like, if I had, you know, if, if that happened, I could, I could say, yeah, like I, I kept that, that strength much, much easier. So I, I've enjoyed it. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I'm doing a, a bit of inter- intermittent fasting myself. I'll eat it, probably have my last meal at about about six thirty p.m. and then I'll I'll fast until about ten thirty. And I've I've noticed uh, a difference too. You know, it's like you know you're just not as full, I guess. You know, during during the day, or when you wake up, I should say. So when you so uh, hold on, hold on. Can I can I ask you? I gotta ask one quick question here, if I can interject for just a second. Lane, um, one thing I I don't climb anything. I've never climbed any mountains. Never climbed any hills. Never uh, walked up anything steep. <laughs> so what I found interesting is that is it, there's a you have to pay a certain amount of money to climb these things, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you're talking about the seven peaks, mm-hmm. um, there's there's a a monetary requirement, and one of the the lowest requirements or the lowest or the cheapest climb you could do of the seven summits is, is Kilimanjaro, because um, the, the the more difficult, the more technical climbing, uh, you have to have more specialized training. You have to go into more remote locations. Uh, it usually takes longer. And you have to have specialized equipment. So a lot of those things require a lot more money. Uh, For Kilimanjaro specifically, uh, depending on who you go with, uh, what tour group, uh, $1,500 to $2,000 is a a pretty normal um, cost for the tour itself. Wow. Um, Of course, you have to get there. um, And um, if you want to add a safari on there, that might be a little bit extra. But that's, that's generally about the price. Right. See, I'm over here. I'm kind of dumb. And I'm like, I thought you just walk up to the mountain and just start climbing. I'm like, I'm just going to, tomorrow I'm going to go climb Kilimanjaro and just do my thing. And, and nobody's there to worry about it. But um, I had no idea there was some sort of cost associated with that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you deployed to Iraq twice. What would you say is the biggest difference between your first deployment and your second deployment? Yeah, so my both of my deployments were towards the end uh, of the war. Uh OIF-7 and then OND, and yeah, there was a, a huge difference. I mean, the OIF-7, uh, still combat, combat operations still going on, uh, but still, of course, dwindling. Uh, OND was was much less than that. Um, yeah, so it was just a – and it wasn't that far far away from each other. They were about, I think, six months or so. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely at the end of the war. Um, things were just kind of, you know, slowing down and, and everybody could kind of feel it. And, um, yeah. Would you say it prepared you pretty well for, um, for deploying to Africa? Oh, what's that? Would you say that, you know, going to Iraq, you know, your experience there, would you say that that, that prepared you well for Africa or would you say that Africa is a completely different beast? Yeah. I mean, uh, any experience in combat is going to prepare you to some degree for any other follow-on missions, uh, high risk or otherwise, uh, because um, there's so many things that, that happen in combat or preparation for combat that uh, that are just less dramatic in a high-risk environment or uh, just a kind of a training kind of exercise or uh, or a different kind of mission. So uh, basically, you know, if you have the you know the combat operations, other things are are, are at a I wouldn't consider a lower lower tier. It's just a different kind of mission, uh, but definitely prepared for sure. Um, there's so many things that you can can carry over from combat or from from any any mission in general. So any experience, any uh, mission uh, deployment, you can always use that information for the next one. Did you do any climbing while you were while you were in the military? 
Yeah, so towards towards the end of my uh, career, I uh, did did a lot of Arctic training, and so in preparation for that, uh, we did so, a lot of mountain training, and uh, so specifically climbing in Austria, um, doing um, first learning how to ski well, because uh, a lot of people, uh, even if they do have skiing experience, they uh, don't have the proper form, and especially if you're going to put on a 25, maybe a 45 pound ruck, depending on the kind of mission, uh, while you're skiing, uh, you have to have the proper form. And then on top of that, if you're, um, doing some kind of, uh, mountainous movement, uh, and you have, uh, these sleds behind you that you have a ruck on, and then you're dragging a sled. I mean, all these things that you have to learn. And, uh, that's, you know, that's, that was critical for us to, to be able to get those basics down and then just build upon those. And then, um, and then do uh, you know tech, more technical climbing from there? Um, yeah, we had a, a great mountain team, um, and th- these guys were just top of the line, super pr- proficient. And uh, I was actually a mobility team, but we had uh, we were doing Arctic warfare, and, and so we kind of teamed up. You know, our team and uh, the the mountain team, we teamed up, and then we did a lot of training together. So it was uh, a lot of yeah, we did a lot of mountain climbing, and then. Uh, Directly after that, we basically went up to the Arctic. Um, mountainous training or mountain training and Arctic training uh, have a lot of similarities, but also there's a lot of differences. So, But there's a lot of things that, that you can learn from the mountain and then take it to the Arctic, and that's exactly what we did. So when you got out of the military, and you did, were you still climbing like just as a hobby? Uh, not, not that often, no. Um, I... Uh, I'm, I'm very active with uh, different kinds of travel, uh, different kinds of activities. Um, so mountain climbing, I hadn't actually done too much of, um, especially technical climbing. Uh, you know, there's, there's some uh, hills and stuff. A couple, uh, I climbed a volcano here in, pa- in Panama um, in preparation for Kilimanjaro. Um, so it did a little bit, but... When, when I when I when I consider climbing mountains, I'm talking about like very not very technical, but somewhat technical and more challenging than than uh, just you know being able to do a day hike kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, the the plan is to um, continue with the Seven Summit kind of challenge um, at least up until the, the last one, and and uh, I'm not sure exactly if, if Everest is going to be is going to happen. But base camp for sure will happen. So we'll get the the first six summits for sure, and then base camp, and then uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen. You know, by the time that <laughs> that final uh, summit uh, approaches, I don't know what it'll look like. Yeah, I think that you're going to end up doing all seven, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I have that feeling too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll, tell, we'll we'll see though. When is uh, when is number six up? So we have a. Uh, a little group that we have about five or six guys. Uh, we're planning uh, for either Russia or um, I th- oh, man, I can't remember what, what it is. The one in the U.S. Uh, for later this year or earlier next year. So, um, so we're, we're going at a slower pace. Um, 
because I guess you, like the fastest you can go would probably be like four or five years to do all of them. Uh, but uh, conservatively, uh, it would probably take ten years to to do all seven summits. So yeah, we're we're just taking our taking our time. But yeah, Russia or the, the one in the U.S. Um, it will be the next one either later this year or, or earlier next year. By the time you get to by the time you get to Everest. At that point, you know, say you've you've climbed six of the seven summits, you'll probably get sponsored. You'll probably get a sponsorship for for that, wouldn't you? I mean, it depends on on how a lot of other things go. Um, as it as it stands now, it's just a, a personal kind of hobby, uh, personal challenge. Um, you know, with my company, Increase Freedom, and my other ventures that I'm doing, uh, the the visibility may may grow and sponsorship may be in the picture uh, but it, it may not so yeah we'll just see how it goes and uh there's definitely a story there for sure uh, because the the seven summits or at least the six summits plus base camp isn't the only kind of uh world challenge kind of thing that i'm looking for because uh, i still want to do uh north pole south pole um and uh eventually visit all the countries in the world so there's there's definitely a story there uh what that story is, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> or how to tell it, uh, but I'm, 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 I'm writing it as we speak. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, man. I mean, that's a story that I want to hear because that's, that's incredibly interesting. When did you start, uh, you know, getting interested in, I know you did uh, Arctic training in, in the military, but what made you want to keep doing it when you got out? Well, um, you know, being in the military, and being told kind of what to, you know, what the mission was, what to do, where to go. Uh, being in the military and especially special forces, you knew that it was going to be something cool, something interesting, uh, something out of the ordinary. Uh, so that aspect of it was great. Uh, but after a while, it became, for, you know, for me specifically, uh, something that where I wanted to have more control over the places that I go, when I could go, and, and the the things that I could do there. And so just kind of the freedom to explore the globe, you know, as I wanted to, so to speak. And so the military gave me that opportunity to kind of get that taste of the wild or the uh, so-called extreme or the nature. Um, so by giving me that taste, I was able to then just kind of run with it um, after the military you know, I've only been out two years, so I'm still definitely working on the on you know the, all the different kinds of things that I want to do. Um, so it's a it's an ever growing process, but it's just something that um, you know, like you know, if any you know if anybody asks you like you know why do you want to climb mountains, and you know the the common answer is like you know because it was there, yeah. uh, you know because it's, it's uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know ultimately any challenge, uh, any endeavor, any activity that you do is leading up to a feeling. So getting on top of Kilimanjaro, right? The, the process, the journey, you're, you're, you're feeling something like, oh, yes, like, like I'm feeling pumped up, uh, you know, camaraderie with the guys that I'm, that I'm hiking with. But then up, up at the top, uh, it's a very personal kind of feeling. And it's a feeling that you can only feel and experience yourself. And it's difficult to explain. And, and we all have these kinds of feelings, no matter what. The, it doesn't have to be climbing a mountain. It could be just some challenge that, that you overcome, uh, some endeavor that you achieve. But at the, at the very tip or the top of it, that point, you have a feeling that you're trying to arrive to. 
And that feeling is the thing that fuels all of us. And the climbing the mountain is the vehicle. The the travel is the vehicle. Doing cool stuff in the U.S. or uh, creating a podcast for people to to grow as a person. Like th- those are all vehicles to arrive yourself at a at a point of a feeling. And so, um, you know, my you know some of my advice to a lot of people is that that take an honest look at that feeling that you want to feel. Uh, I'm not I'm not talking about like wishy washy emotional stuff. I'm talking about like powerful like stuff that like man I want to I want to do that. Uh, I want to climb. You know I want to feel that like feeling of like like conquering a mountain or whatever it is that is that resonates with you to really take an honest assessment of what that is and then um, don't don't ever stop until you reach that point. Yeah, that's really interesting when you talk about that feeling because uh, one of my buddies one time, he was like, hey, do you want to go rock climbing with me? And I had a problem with heights. I was like, I don't know, man. And he's like, you know, just just give it a shot. And, you know, I was like, all right, fine, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I did. And we went out and I climbed like like 15 or 20 feet. I looked back and like I absolutely fucking lost it, man. And we came down and like that was it for the day. But, you know, I went home and, you know, and I was like laying there and I was like, I'm I'm absolutely terrified of heights, but that was actually a lot of fun. And I want to do it, you know. And uh, we went out, I think, like a, maybe a week later and I climbed like this, like 150 foot, like, like rock face. And afterwards, you know, it's like, that's not really high, you know, but for me, I was like, I felt freedom. Do you know what I mean? Like, I felt like. Like, um, like I was on top of the world. It, it's really hard to articulate, but I mean, I, I felt like that maybe kind of like that feeling that you were talking about. And yeah, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, a feeling of flow, which is a whole other topic. Uh, the, the Greeks had, had a word called, called ecstasis and we've translated to ecstasy. And basically it's, it's being in that full present moment it's all encompassing where time is lost and there are certain activities um, like for instance the the guys that, that do the wingsuit jumps right like that is immediately taps them into a state of ecstasis like a state of flow that of, of extreme concentration of in the moment where time doesn't exist and I think that we all can can reach that point uh, and and with the advent of technology, uh, altered states, which is a whole, whole other topic, <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot of different safe ways to do it and on different levels. Even uh, um, the practice of meditation uh, is an altered state where you can tap into that state of flow or ecstasis. And um, they say that whenever you feel that for the first time, like that, that's a feeling that you just can't unfeel. And you'll want to do that again. And that's why you have these guys that are um, continuing to, you know, base jump and, and do the winning suit jumps um, until, you know, ultimately a lot of them, you know, they don't make it because they continue to try to feel that feeling. Um, I think that there's going to be more safe ways to do that. Um, and of course, there's there's uh, <clears throat> so many different ways to get a state of flow, but it's it takes a lot of uh, practice and, and self-mastery. Uh, but it's definitely achievable. What would you say, you know, for people, because a lot of people, they want to stay in their safe place and they want to, um, you know, they, they want to, you know, they want to do things, but at the same time, 
they, they want to make sure that 100% they're going to make it out of it alive. Like, what do you, what kind of advice do you have for people to, to try to leave their comfort zones? Yeah. So, um, I would say just one step at a time. Um, that's the, the, the best advice. Um, just go outside of the comfort zone. Um, being able to identify where that is and what makes you feel like, Oh, I don't, I don't like that. You know, like then just take one step outside of that. And, and then whenever you take that step, feel it, you know, live it and then get back into your comfort zone and then reflect about it afterwards. Um, and then after, after you do it, after you step in outside of that comfort zone, you reflect on it. You're like, oh, man, actually, that wasn't too bad. That, was, that wasn't too bad. I mean, and, and then you say, OK, let me let me go one more step. And then you just take one more step, one more step, one more step. And then eventually you've walked a mile and you didn't, re- didn't even realize it. And then after so many times of doing that, stepping outside of your comfort zone by one step is the new norm. It almost feels like, oh, man, I can't. I feel like I need to do something new and it's not like a, an adrenaline junkie kind of feeling, but just like you kind of grow accustomed to the growth of stepping outside of your comfort zone. And it doesn't have to stop at just one area of your life. Uh, it'll expand into nearly every area of your life. What was your trip to the Arctic like? So, uh, I think I've been three, three times or so. Uh, two with the military and then one, um, you know, with my wife. Um, so each one, of course, the military were, were definitely different experiences. The one with my wife, um, the, the military, uh, they, uh, were incredible experiences, uh, a lot of, uh, rough, rugged living, uh, a lot of kind of pushing the, pushing the boundaries. Um, so that aspect was that the challenging aspect was uh, very welcoming. Uh, the, the trip with my wife uh, was more of a, um, a an exploration, I guess, with um, just really being encompassed in the moment. And so uh, we did a tour of the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. Uh, they're, they're somewhat elusive, uh, but if you go with a, a tour guide that knows what they're doing and have done it for a long time. You can kind of anticipate it, uh, although it's, that's not 100%. Um, so by exploring that kind of nature, that wonder of the Northern Lights, uh, kind of tapped into, into nature a little bit more than I did uh, in, in a different way. Um, so you know, each experience uh, offered a different lesson learned, a different life experience. And um, Ultimately, every every single time, doesn't matter if it's going into the Arctic again or, or otherwise, um, taking the experience that you have from travels, from life in general, whatever it is, um, bringing that with you, but don't let that bias hold you back from experiencing that new place um, almost as if for the first time with, with no preconceived notions. How did you prepare your body for the cold? Um, so yeah, specifically for the Arctic, uh, it doesn't matter if it's, we're talking Arctic or mountain. Um, again, it's the, it's the simple baby steps of taking your body to the next level and testing out how your body reacts to the cold because everybody's different. And ultimately what's going to make you survive and ultimately thrive is knowing your body, uh, extremely well. And so some guys, their hands get cold 
really fat or cold at first. Some guys, it's their feet. Some guys, it's their nose. They turn red. Uh, some guys uh, can feel stuff in their in their joints. Um, some guys are really hot. You know, some guys run really cold. Uh, so all of those factors that you have to just really experience and know about your body are going to allow you to wear the right clothing, bring the right equipment. And ultimately, whenever you're with a team, you'll be able to identify those those strong points and weak points um, in your teammates or whoever you're, you're going with. Uh, because ultimately, uh, you can know yourself very well and you can have self-mastery and know how to anticipate um, how, how the cold weather is going to affect you. But ultimately, sometimes it's your buddy said, hey, dude, your nose is really cold. Like you need to, you know, warm it up. Like you're, you're going to get frostbite. And, uh, and then you do the preventive measure. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, it's really just taking that, that experience and stepping into it. So if, if uh, someone is, is looking to uh, go to the Arctic and do some kind of rigorous stuff, I would say start in your backyard, so to speak. Um, go to a, the closest place where you can get cold and then do something that is, you know, so-called just outside of what you know. Of course, do tons of research, talk to people that have done it, um, go with somebody that is experienced so that way you can learn via osmosis because there's so much stuff that is, is nuanced with uh, extreme training. Uh, and, and we're talking about Arctic training here. So there's so much nuance that uh, until you live through it and feel it and um, experience it, you won't know exactly when to apply certain things only by doing it and then ultimately having somebody, uh, a trainer, a mentor, or somebody that is just experienced to say, hey, this is that time for you to do that one thing we're talking about. <laughs> and, and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so that's that's the – take it step by step, and that's it. Let's talk about your road trip. You said that you traveled to 37 states in three months. Yeah, so we departed Germany uh, March 2017, and then we spent about a month or so in Colorado, and and then we departed for our road trip from uh, Greeley, Colorado, and we generally went northwest. So our first stop was uh, just short of Yellowstone and the Teton Mountains, and then we basically we just uh, went uh, counterclockwise. And made our way to Seattle, the, the Oregon, northern California coast. And, I mean, just went all the way around to, to the southern, uh, you know, Florida, then the east coast, Niagara, and then back to uh, Colorado. And um, the, the cool thing about that experience was um, two things, right? The diversity of um, the U.S. Um, we were able to see the different cultures, the different foods, the different lifestyles, the different mentalities, uh, even as short as a couple of days. Like uh, Montana, for instance, had a totally different mentality than, than the people in Seattle. And those were just like a couple of days apart. Uh, and so many times that happened. Um, and to be able to see that diversity, um, but at the same time to be able to see the, the overwhelming similarities, you know, because Oftentimes when we're watching the news, we see all this divisive uh, rhetoric saying, you know, it's the left versus the right. It's these people versus those people. And you can kind of almost get caught up into this this mentality of, yeah, there's so much difference in the, in the U.S. And to a certain degree, there is. But it's really 
making a difference out of that one percent because the the ninety nine percent of the U.S. is 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 so similar in, in so many different ways, um, and we can can you know we can nitpick on the differences, but ultimately you know our similarities are, are overwhelming. So it was an incredible road trip, and um, one word of advice. Uh, I will, I will never do a three month road trip again. <laughs> uh, after, after two months, that was the time where it was like, we were having the time of our lives, but man, this is a lot, <laughs> you know, ready to go home. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was just, you know, on the road constantly. And, uh, I mean, we spaced it out very well. Um, but even then every little cluster of where we stopped um, we were pretty much seeing somebody that we knew, uh, and they were only going to see us for two, three days or so. But so, so they were fresh. They were ready. Like, let's do this, 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 and this. And we're like, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but ultimately, it was it was a, a great experience. I wouldn't have you know I wouldn't have changed anything about it. But for future uh, road trips, we'll definitely won't uh, pass the threshold of two months. Uh, maybe not even one month. So, uh, but. Uh, it was an incredible experience, and and I uh, recommend um, anybody in the U.S. to take a, an extended road trip. It doesn't have to be three months; it could be two weeks. Um, but get on that open road. Um, one of the one of the coolest things I like about road trips is that you get to slowly ease your way into the new culture. Um, when we travel via plane, we we lo- lose out on the the transition of one place to the next, and we just we are just immersed in it without that kind of that kind of nice smooth transition, and I like that that transition that that feeling of yeah this is kind of the same but it's a little different and it allows you to observe the nuance of culture uh, the people and uh, it's it's just a cool experience it's a cool way to travel and I recommend it to anybody. What made you want to move down to Panama? So Panama was something that was that, that was a, a move that made sense. Uh, my wife, she was born here, uh, so her mom, full Panamanian. Her dad, uh, Air Force. Um, so her dad came down here to Panama, stationed, um, met my wife's mom. Of course, had my wife, <laughs> and then they moved to the U.S. and that's where my wife grew up. So my wife, you know, we have half of our families down here, and so. When we left Germany, we were there for three years in the military. We got out, we did the road trip, and then it just made sense for us to, you know, at the time to continue to live abroad and kind of live this kind of overseas lifestyle, this vagabond lifestyle. And, you know, it also allowed us to get to know our family. And it just, it was just a, the, the move that we uh, made in 2017, it was the right move. Um, during that time and uh, ultimately uh, this vagabond trip had to come to an end and and you know at the time of this recording uh, two days from now we'll be actually moving back to the U.S. and so we're pretty excited about that. Yeah you'll be able to listen to the podcast uh, in America on Monday when it's released to everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so could you uh, could you tell us about your company in Increase Freedom? Yeah so Increase Freedom like we talked about before, um, ultimately feeling is the thing that we want to arrive to. And that feeling that increased freedom helps you get to is, is that feeling of bliss that, that, that ultimate, like, 
yes. Um, and you know, our logo is of the, of a, of like a guy kind of outstretched arms, kind of soaking in the moment, uh, could be on top of a mountain, could be at the beach, could be, um, you know, at your grandma's house for all I know, (laughs) but that feeling of like, yes, this is exactly what I need right now at this particular moment, because life is dynamic. Life is ever changing, but you know, right now is, is the moment that we want to seize and to feel that in the moment is, is what we try to help you with. Um, and we do that two ways. Um, we do that with via high performance mindset coaching. And then we actually help you plan a trip overseas, um, with embedded principles and values to allow for a transformative experience to occur. Um, so those are the two ways that, that we kind of attack that kind of arriving to a feeling. And, uh, it's, it's been a, a great learning experience and, um, yeah, it's, it's, a uh, it's just a thing that, that I, I wish that everybody would, uh, try to experience, uh, travel to, to, to grow. So what kind of, of mindset, uh, principles to you are, are you, are you teaching people? Yeah. So the, the four main ones, um, are, um, that you should implement every single day during your travels is education, connection, solitude, and, um, now I'm on the spot <laughs> and, uh, um, it's all good. Uh, education, uh, solitude, connection, and um, discomfort, right? Um, so embedding all of those into every single day, uh, it doesn't have to be like your whole day is dedicated to these activities, but just sprinkle them in there. Um, connection, that is having a conversation or connecting with somebody um, that you don't know, or it could be connecting with somebody you do know that you're traveling with. Um, and something that I recommend is, is just having a conversation with a stranger uh, for 15 minutes every single day while you're traveling. Um, and really embed that curiosity of that genuine curiosity into their story, who they are, what they're about. Uh, and, and so that will help spark that connection. Uh, education is, is real simple. Um, just consuming some kind of good, um, book, uh, course, uh, podcast like this one right here. Mm-hmm. Um, something like that to, to help you, uh, get some kind of new information and educate you in a meaningful way. Um, there's, there's so many different topics and stuff that you can learn about, educate yourself with. So, uh, and, and it'll, it'll always change. So Im- implement that on a daily basis. Um, discomfort. That's, you know, we talked about that before. Um, just taking that small step every single day and, and it could be combined with a conversation. If you're a introvert and you don't like to talk to people, we'll just talk to somebody for five minutes. And if that makes you really uncomfortable, that's what you should do <laughs> and uh, not get two, two, two birds out with one stone. Uh, but whatever that discomfort is, and, and it's not about living a life of discomfort. It's about uh, those small steps and then you get back in your comfort zone, think about it, and then, and then, you, and then you grow like that. And the final one is solitude, and that's uh, spending just a, a couple moments a day uh, reflecting on those other three elements. Um, and you can even you know, take, take some notes about it, journal about it. Um, but just reflect on like, you know, what did that mean? You know, when I, uh, you know, connected with that, that person or, you know, what, what, how could I apply that education thing that I read, uh, in my life or even tomorrow, uh, you know, or that discomfort, like, man, like what was it, you know, why was I really, uh, you know, feeling discomfort about that? And 
now I'm feeling a little better. You know, just so just kind of think about like why and the effects of those other three elements. And and if you do that every single day, there there is a very high probability that you will grow and you'll come out the other side uh, transformed in a positive way. And so those are the four for uh, like principles and values. Of course, there's other smaller techniques that, depending on the person um, that we that we help you with. Where would you recommend maybe a maybe three places recommend that people travel outside of the if you live in the United States outside of the United States? Yeah, so Europe is probably the the number one. Um, it's it's uh, something that is outside of the familiar, uh, but not too outside. Um, and ultimately, everybody's everybody's different. But for me, uh, the general advice for or universal advice, you know, for this kind of thing that I'm giving uh, without specific details, is just take the next step outside of the comfort zone. And because if you're if someone that's listening to this right now that is freaked out about uh, dirty stuff or uh, dangerous places, like then that's not the place that you don't want to go to a, a place that's war torn or uh you know very dirty or whatever the case may be uh ease into it and europe is the, is the best place for that um for for me if you're going to do europe uh i'll probably do a 10 trip or a 10 day trip maybe even two weeks and pick two big cities that, that you want to go to um and and then just spend a week or five to seven days in each one of those places and really explore those uh cities uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, that's that's what I would recommend for for people is to probably go to Europe, go to two cities, spend ten to ten to fourteen days, and then uh, really get to know the the city intimately. What would you say is uh, is a place that you went to that you were really uh, maybe shocked or taken back by? It's like a place where you were like, man, this place is um, it's just awesome. You know, like I had no idea that this place was so beautiful. Yeah, for me. Nature is what really drives that feeling of uh, awe. Um, of course, the, the cities are great, uh, the people, the great food, you know, that kind of stuff. But for me, nature. Um, so uh, when we visited Norway, the secludedness of that feeling of just kind of being in the middle of nowhere with seemingly nobody around and that vastness of nature, that awe-inspiring um you know, fjords or the, you know, just the, that sheer nature. Um, so Norway was one of them. Um, Peru was another. Um, and then there's varying levels of degrees of just like cool nature stuff. Uh, but for me, yeah, it's nature. Yeah, that's the, the, the and, and being kind of secluded gives me that feeling of like, man, and it's, it's not uh, insignificance because that, that could be the feeling like if you, you know, if someone were to look out in the ocean and like, oh man, I'm so small compared to the ocean. Or if I go to, you know, the middle of Sahara or, you know, go to the, you know, the Arctic, like nobody's out here, like, and you can almost feel small, but at the same time, uh, you can feel very empowered that, that, you know, us as, as humans, uh, can almost conquer whatever we put our mind to, uh, both physically and mentally. And to, to kind of, understand that and feel that fully in these kind of secluded places you're like man that's that's pretty cool um so that's so that's that's what you know really kind of drives me a lot is is nature it is a place that you went to and you're like wow the food is just unbelievable here 
Um, you can say in in a good. How about in a good way, in a bad way? Like a place that you went to, and you're like, "Wow, the food is just absolutely superb here." And another place that you went to, where you're like, "You know what? Uh, I don't really like it here." Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the first thing that kind of came to mind. It's not that original, but um, being able to eat fruits uh, from the local, like that place where it was grown. Um, like pineapples, you know, and uh, like bananas and stuff like that to where um, it just doesn't taste the same. Like it t- once you taste like the right way to, to eat it and it's like ripe and all that stuff. Um, like here in Panama, like they have awesome pineapples. And, you know, I didn't really like pineapples before um, because cause like before, you know, they kind of have to pick it beforehand and, and, and to transport it. Uh, so it kind of gave gives you that sour kind of feeling or taste uh but here it's just perfect uh, same thing with papaya uh in bali papaya and uh banana in bali uh was just incredibly rich in uh you know the taste and nutrients and stuff like that um man i mean i just i'm, I'm the kind of guy that likes all kinds of foods and but i'm the, I'm the kind of guy that uh picks a very specific dish in that cuisine and then that's about all that I eat from that from that cuisine. Like Thai food, I like Pad Thai. Uh, Indian food, I like a very like just like a specific uh, chicken jiao freezy. It's like a, you know chicken and spicy kind of like pepper stuff. Uh, all these different kinds of cuisines. Like I try a whole bunch of them, and then I'm like, yep, that's the kind I like. And then that's pretty much what I. <laughs> that's my go. I have a go to for 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 most different kinds of cuisines. Yeah, I do too. I you know when I was in when I was in Korea. Like my first day, well, not my first day, maybe like it might have been like two weeks in. They're like, yeah, well, we're going to take you out. We're going to go out for Chinese food. I'm like, all right, cool. So we, uh, we go to this Chinese restaurant and I'm looking at the menu and it's all in Chinese or, or Hangul. I, I don't remember. But I was like, uh, I, I was talking to one of the guys. I was like, hey, where's the Mongolian beef? <laughs> and they're laughing at me they're like dude this isn't america i'm like is mongolian beef like american or i thought it was chinese food they're like yeah dude that's like american chinese food and i was like completely screwed (laughs) yeah chinese food in every single country is slightly different uh that's that's the thing is you know with chinese food like uh the that country's culture and kind of cuisine like has a very uh impactful uh, it has an impact on the that that kind of Chinese food. So it's uh, yeah, Chinese food is is different all over the world. And uh, my wife was just in China, uh, I think two months ago, and uh, she just said it was just incredible, like totally different than the U.S. Chinese food, uh, but just incredible food. Yeah, said it was. The, she ate the best uh, two weeks of her life there. <laughs> <laughs> no Panda Express in in China then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Well, hey, brother. We appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. It was uh, it was really informative. Uh, I'm gonna want to get you back on to here after you climb your next uh, your next peak. And uh, and where can people where can people reach you on social media and you know website if they want to you know plan a trip or or what have you? Where can you be found? Yeah, so everything's increased freedom. So increasefreedom.com. Uh, at Increase Freedom for Instagram and then uh, Increase Freedom on Facebook. Um, that, those are the you know those are the places you can you can hit me up and uh, if you just have questions you know shoot them my way. Uh, if you want to just 
learn some stuff, you know, that's cool too. Just, um, so many people have helped me along the way, um, inside of the military, outside of the military, post-military, uh, that, you know, it's just my, you know, feeling that, that giving back is, is what I have to do. Um, as I continue to grow, continue to learn, uh, it's just a, a never ending cycle of, of giving back and helping other people in, in the best way that I can. Well, thanks, Mike. Mike, do you, do you have anything? No, thanks a lot for your service, and I appreciate the stories and coming on here with us. Yeah, man, we we definitely want to thank you for uh, you know your service to our our beautiful countrymen. And yeah, uh, no. no, go on ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know, and yeah, thank you uh, for for serving as well. And um, yeah, it was just an honor to be on the podcast and, and uh, sharing cool ideas, having a good conversation. You guys are doing great things and uh, just continue to do what you do. Thanks, brother. Well, everybody, that's all we got for you tonight. This is Lane, Mike, and Pre out. Mm-hmm.